and welcome to the North Decatur Presbyterian Church Sermon Series. We're a PCUSA congregation in Decatur, Georgia. If you'd like to find out more about us, go to ndpc.org or just come by and visit. Here's this week's sermon. If you turn your attention to the screens, you'll see a painting uh, by a man named Caspar David Friedrich. It's called Winter Landscape. I was first introduced to this painting during my uh, Jerry Garcia phase, and I've not stopped looking at this painting since. What you'll see is the cathedral in the background marred by the clouds and the weather. And you'll also see, as you make your way downward, that there is a line of trees and a rock and some crutches sprawled out into the snow. And if you follow those crutches into the tree, you'll see a person leaned up against the rock praying. They haven't made it to the church. But in the trees, you also see an image of the crucified Christ who has appeared to them in their suffering and in their low estate. So often we think of Christ being existing in the powerful structures that we build, but Christ meets us in our low points and in our pain. So what do you think of when you hear the phrase redemptive violence or the myth of redemptive violence? Is this a familiar concept to you or is this the first time that you're ever hearing this at 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning? Well, let me give you a definition. Redemptive violence myths are the sort of stories we tell to gloss over horrific events. Maybe you were taught that the discovery of America was this beautiful intermingling of cultures when in fact there is another side of the story. That's kind of what we're talking about with redemptive violence myths. Um, Because I'm a total nerd, my mind instantly went to the 2016 film Batman vs. Superman Dawn of Justice, which overall is not a very good movie. I I can't say that I recommend it. But at the very beginning, there's this massive battle between Superman and his longtime enemy, General Zod. From far away, the battle contained much of the same stuff we see in all of these superhero movies. They were crashing through buildings, throwing cars at each other, and it's, of course, not a Superman movie without, like, laser eyes. However, the director, Zack Snyder, does something different in this film. He starts to show the battle from the perspective of those in the city, People on the streets, children on a field trip, people going to work, and the heroes and first responders responding to the fallout from this battle. It seems in this film, Zack Snyder is trying to say that there's another side of the story. Maybe Superman isn't who we thought he was. Unfortunately, redemptive violence myths are not just limited to the media that we consume. They're woven into the fabric of our very own country's mythology. And actually, our films and television shows are just symptoms of that. Westward expansion, the slave trade, the discovery of America all contain these narratives. Yeah, I'm afraid, too, with America, there is another side of of the story. And lastly, our faith is not immune to these narratives either. The conquests detailed in the book of Joshua, among others, display all sorts of problematic things in our world. They've been used and applied in situations throughout history, and modern political discourse is rife with these cheap readings of scripture where one side is deemed righteous 
and the other side is put against God. Maybe at some point in your life, you've been on the receiving end of these narratives. You've been told that your lifestyle stands in opposition to God's plan and that God could not possibly accept you. And I want you to know that if you've heard that, I'm very sorry. These sorts of narratives are perpetuated because of our big idea for the month, power. We attempt to redeem the violence within scripture. We attempt to redeem the violence within our own country's mythology or our American media so that we can redeem the horror within them and we can call ourselves justified. We can maintain the image of the good guy. I don't know if anyone watched Saturday Night Live in the 90s, but there was a brief phase where Colin Quinn was the host of the Weekend Update, and he would always end his time on the Weekend Update with the phrase, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. Redemptive violence narratives use the same tactic to end their stories. They attempt to keep us 20,000 feet above so that we don't have to look at the details. But in scripture, there's another side of the story. The writer of Philippians reminds us of Christ's understanding of power. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God, power, equality with God, as something to be exploited, Other translations use the term as something to be grasped or to grab onto. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The incarnation of Christ subverts our expectations. We expect a ruler and we're given a servant. We want hubris and swagger, and we're given humility. In our weak moments, we may even want a form of violence. It would be so much easier for God incarnate to come and just take care of the people that we don't like, to cancel those that we deem problematic or troublesome, to come in like Superman and fight our proverbial general's odds to the death in a final battle of judgment. But instead, Christ comes into the world and tells us that divine behavior is rooted in the emptying of oneself. When Jesus was on his way to crucifixion, Peter pulls a sword out on the Roman guard. And what does he do next? Are you familiar with this story? He cuts his ear off. Jesus' act after Peter's violence is what's so difficult for us to process. The obvious thing to do is to have a fighting Jesus here. This is what the Superman movie writers would do. Put a fighting Jesus into this, into this situation. One who, like Superman, uses laser vision to get the good guys out of the situation. But in an absurd act, Christ heals the person, the very person who's leading him to his death. Here we see Christ's life showing the emphasis of the absurd over the obvious. The Christians that dominate the political discourse these days use words like winning, But in the end, our hope is not found in winning. If we're playing their game, our hope is found in losing. But Christ's incarnation reminds us that we don't have to play this game. We don't have to to go by the competition or play by these rules. In 10 days, back here in this church, we will adorn our foreheads with ashes, reminding us of the reality that no amount of power or winning will stop that day from coming to us. 
Ash Wednesday marks the beginning of a season where we remind ourselves just how futile worldly power is. During my first year of seminary, I was required to be a chaplain intern at Gwinnett Medical Center in Lawrenceville. And I remember going in on Ash Wednesday, thinking that was, it was going to be a normal day, as if hospital chaplains ever have normal days. All I wanted to do was put my hours in and maybe have lunch in the cafeteria where they had excellent chicken fingers. I didn't get to have lunch that day because patients of all faiths, denominations, and backgrounds wanted to receive ashes. Every third or fourth person I would go into their room, they would open up a bit about why they wanted to receive the ashen cross. They told me that this day brings about so much comfort because it reminds them that God suffered too. God suffered too. And that's great, Rob, but what about the Joshua conquest narrative? You didn't really answer that question in the beginning. Well, I'm in my second year of seminary, so go easy on me. But I'm going to offer three things that we can do. We have three options here. Number one, we can pull a Thomas Jefferson and black out all the things that we don't like in Scripture. And there are times where I'm tempted to do that. But that opens up a whole other can of worms. We can't erase history and we can't erase the things that have been put down on paper, no matter how hard we try. Number two, we can keep trying this redemptive violence thing. We can continue to exclude our neighbors and ignore the things that we don't like or the parts of our story that we're not comfortable with. But again, by doing this, you've seen what happens. We just continue to recycle the same sorts of things over and over again. Option three, we can do the hard work of reading scripture in light of context. We can support our scholars in the room who do this hard work, and we can understand that oppressed people groups write things to cope with their current struggle, and that we cannot possibly fathom all of those, that, those things in their context. So I'm an option three person myself, but honestly, I don't think that those answers alone are sufficient. I don't think there's any way to read an ancient text that sits right. And while the Joshua narrative is tough to reconcile, I want to suggest that the life of Christ is tough to follow. Christ's life demonstrates to us a challenge to see those for whom violence has been done, to visit the sick, the imprisoned, and the hurting. And what you'll find is that the comfort that earthly power accumulation offers is no comfort at all. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this reflection on the cross in the manger. He said, for the great and powerful of this world, there are only two places in which their courage fails them, of which they are afraid deep down in their souls, from which they shy away. These are the manger and the cross of Jesus Christ. No powerful person dares to approach the manger, and this even includes King Herod, for this is where the thrones shake, the mighty fall, the prominent perish, because God is with the lowly. Here the rich come to nothing, because God is with the poor and the hungry. But the rich and satisfied, he sends away empty. Before Mary the maid, before the manger of Christ, before God and lowliness, the powerful come to naught. They have no right, no hope, and they are judged. Friends, the good news of this passage is that God is not out to continue the cycle of violence and retribution, but God has come so that we can never have to go back to that again. So this is one of those sermons where I would end it right there, 
but I don't think that my words there are sufficient. Because I want to warn you that being kingdom-like is hard. The way of Christ is absurd, difficult, and doesn't make much sense. And in our climate, it's downright countercultural. It most certainly pushes us out of, our, out of our context and into the margin. And if you're here today and you feel like you're on the margin, I want you to know that God doesn't just see you, but identifies with you. Friends, know that there is a secret way at work in the world, and God is inviting us to play along. The assurance of grace we did at the beginning of this service is meant to remind you that you are God's beloved, and you are free. You are free to love, you are free to serve, and you are free to tell a new narrative. And to tell new narratives means that we need to get out and know our neighbors and our friends for whom these violence narratives have harmed. Listen to them, hear them, know them, and when you do that, I really believe you will love them. So that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Amen.